Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about faith. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to let you know about what's happening at our church this summer. Due to COVID-19 and everything surrounding it, our services have moved outside. God has blessed our church with an incredible seven acres in North Wilsonville, and someday we'll have a building there. But in the meantime, it's a perfect solution for us to have church during all that's going on in our world. We would love to have you join us, and so if you want the information about what our services look like this summer, you can go to wilsonville.church slash property gathering. That's wilsonville.church slash property gathering. We would love for you to join us for one of these outdoor services. They're going to be fun. They're going to be different. It's going to be an exciting summer. And so we hope that you'll consider joining us. We'd love to meet you in person. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon. I really do hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. And I want to start by saying uh, something like this, that life has been really complicated lately. And I, it's interesting. I was able to get a hold of somebody that for years I've wanted to get a hold of, just this week. Uh, if you've been around, you might know that I spent two months as a uh, summer intern missionary in southeast Idaho in between my junior and senior year of college. And uh, I lived with this uh, a pastor and his wife there when I did that for the two months, and I helped serve churches in southeast Idaho, these little churches. I mean, one of them had uh, seven people. Uh, and they, there. When you, if you Google the Arban Valley, interestingly enough, this uh, non-irrigated farmland in southeast Idaho, uh, when it when it lists the things to do, one of them is this church because it's like one of the only buildings in the Arban Valley. It lists the church as as an activity, and and then we served in Soda Springs, Idaho. Uh, just like one and a half families basically at this church and and I loved my time there but uh, I was able to I've been looking for this pastor for years he's an older man there seems to be no internet you know activity I've looked for him I was hoping that that him and his wife uh, Ken and Grace that they were still living Uh, and on a whim this week I, I, I did another Google search I know the organization they used to be with and it connected me to somebody who knew him and I was able to email him this week and as I as I received an email back from Ken I just thought about how simple uh you know life seemed out there in the Arban Valley and how simple it seemed even just being a college age kid at that time I had the whole world ahead of me and now we've come to this place I think all of us where we're faith the thing that we're talking about this summer it seems very complicated it's not as simple as it was as seemingly as simple as it was uh, just a few months ago. I've, I've wrestled with, and I'm not going to list them today, but, but I've wrestled with, as I'm sure you have too, a, a lot of different areas on, on how I live out my faith. And uh, it seems like we have more questions on you know how we respond to people, what we say, what we don't say, than maybe we ever have before. And, and it seems, and maybe you're, you're like me in this, that some people seemingly have it all figured out and then they're just bold ahead but I'm not one of those people I'm I'm wrestling with how do I be a good witness how do I live out my faith in these strange and weird times and and, and I you know I think that most of you if you've been around Christianity at all if you uh, are a person of faith then you know that there's this connection but maybe you forget about it there's this connection between faith and love for God. 
And this morning, what I, I think we're going to see in this story from the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus talks about this, this person's faith, we're going to see that maybe this, this connection between faith and, and loving God, living out of your love for God, is stronger than sometimes we make it. Maybe you look around right now in the world and you're wondering how to live out of faith. That's what we're talking about. What does it mean for me to live in faith right now? And what we're going to see this morning is that at, at the heart of it, last week we talked about a foundation for it, but maybe at the heart of it today it is living in light of your love for God. I didn't mean to put all those L's together, but living in light uh, of your love for God. Uh, you know this song, prone to wonder, wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And, and so while I, I kind of set this up and say, you know, living out your faith is in large part living in love with God, uh, I would also like to say that while that's really easy to say, it's really easy to think about, it's really easy to believe if you're a Christian, it can be much harder to do. And in this story that we're going to look at, I love this, we're going to see, I think, one of the defining characteristics of somebody, of someone who lives in love with with God. Here's how this story begins in Luke 7, 36 through 38. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So here's the situation. Jesus is having dinner at a Pharisee's house. And a Pharisee, uh, according to a Google search, and uh, there's a lot to, uh, you know, that's important about what the Pharisees did and thought that really helps us to understand Scripture. But, but I actually liked this Google definition for our purposes today. A member of an ancient Jewish sect distinguished by, notice this, strict observance of the traditional and written law and commonly held to have pretensions to superior sanctity. So there are two things from that definition that are important. Uh, they, one, were strict observers of the law, and two, they kind of thought they were better than other people when it came to religious things. And in some ways, uh, you know, as far as trying to live out the law, they were better than other people at, at religious things. But that doesn't mean their hearts were right, because notice kind of the the polarity between that, a Pharisee who lived out, you know, the religious tenets of the Jewish faith and this, this description of this woman who does this incredible thing. It says, she lived a sinful life. She lived a sinful life. Now, it's interesting, the whole situation. He's invited over for dinner to this Pharisee's house and then all of a sudden here's this woman who's lived a sinful life showing up. Uh, that's strange kind of in our thinking, but here's what would happen in the first century Jewish world. A, a traveling speaker like Jesus was would come into town, he'd preach at the synagogue, and then he'd be invited over to a religious leader's house. And then other people would show up in order to listen and kind of hear the conversation between the traveling preacher and the religious leaders who lived in their city. And so this woman shows up. It's not that abnormal, but what she does when she arrives is really strange. She starts weeping. I, this is weird what I'm about to say, and I don't know why, but that should be like the most staggering part of the story, I think, but I've never even really noticed it. I've, you know, I've known this story forever, as long as I can remember, but, but like the fact that she's weeping, 
it like never even impacted me. I never even asked the question why. Like why is this woman showing up at this dinner where she's supposed to be listening to the people talk about religious things and then she, she starts crying. And I think it's connected to her sin, the fact that she is a sinful woman. And I think, you know, maybe, you know, one of a few things might be going on here. Maybe she's crying because she's convicted of her sin. And maybe the presence of this holy man named Jesus just makes her feel bad about the, the way she's been living and the things that she's been doing. Perhaps she's crying because she's in the midst of repenting for that sin, from turning from that sin. She realizes that a change needs to take place in her life and so she's weeping because, because she realizes that it has to be different moving forward. And, and perhaps she is crying because she realizes that she has found the source of forgiveness for that sin. Uh, if you've been around any time at all in our church, then, then maybe you've heard me talk about the night that my life changed. And I'm not going to dive too deeply into it in that today, but, but there was a point when I was 17 years old where I realized how incredible of a sinner I was, how bad of a sinner I was. And at the same time, I realized how great of a Savior Jesus was and how different my life needed to be because of that. And all of those kind of three things just smacked together. And I cried longer than I've ever cried maybe in my entire life, longer than maybe still I've ever cried in my entire life. I cried for hours on my floor. And it was this weird kind of mashup of, of sadness because of my sin and thankfulness because of Jesus, and excitement, and love, and joy, and it was just a mess. And that's how I picture this woman showing up, seeing Jesus, and then crying. She cries, and she wets Jesus' feet with her tears, and she places this perfume on his feet, which symbolizes this incredible value that she is placing on him. She even lets down her hair, which in her culture uh, was unacceptable for a woman to do. It was actually, uh, in some groups, it was uh, grounds for divorce if she had been a married woman. A, a man could say, you, you let your hair down and so we're done. And, and so she, she becomes, in the words of David, who lived long before her, undignified in order to worship God. I thought about that story of David when he, when he says that. David, if you know the story, he comes back from fighting battles and he's celebrating the work that God has done and he's dancing naked and, and his wife gets mad at him and she's like, how dare you? And he says, I'll, be, I'll become even more undignified than this in my celebration of God. And here is this woman becoming totally undignified in her society because she realizes that she is a sinner and she is found the Savior, the one who can forgive her for her sins. And then verse 39, we read this, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to him, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now, this guy's named Simon, and just for a second, could we consider it from his point of view? It's kind of an odd situation, right? Like from his perspective, here's this woman breaking so many cultural norms and barriers and, and doing these things that, that are undignified, that just seem kind of strange and weird. And, and what Simon doesn't realize is that this woman is recognizing her sin and the greatness of Jesus as a savior for those sins. And that's what's compelling her to do this, this incredible thing that shows value to Jesus, that places great love upon Jesus. It's interesting because 
There's some debate about whether Simon was supposed to wash Jesus' feet and whether he was supposed to offer him oils in order to put on his head. And, and it seems that maybe it, it wasn't expected, but it was just a nice thing to do. It was like if you know anybody that's really hospitable, uh, I'm not a hospitable person at all, but you show up at their house and they have you know snacks out for you and uh, and they vacuumed and and like things vacuuming probably a cultural norm, but like they go above and beyond just kind of the the baseline. Well, well, Simon here in this story, he's maybe just gone to the baseline. It's not that he's been rude; it's just that he hasn't been. He hasn't been gracious. He hasn't been hospitable. And this woman lavishes love on Jesus. And the difference in these two people is really that one, we're going to see the second, one recognizes, one recognizes their incredible need for Jesus and one doesn't recognize their incredible need for Jesus. Before we even get to that, because Jesus is going to tell this parable, I, I thought of uh, one of my professors, Dr. Wright. He was a missionary in Brazil for a long time. Most incredible stories. Uh, he was getting a little older, so he told us the stories over and over like we had never heard them before. And, and so I could tell right now, I won't, but I could tell Dr. Wright's stories like just the way he told them because I heard them every class period. He was uh, not a particularly great teacher. I don't remember anything but his stories. But his stories were amazing. But the thing that had the most impact on me of all the things that he said. He said when he decided to go and be a missionary in Brazil. People would come up to him all the time and say this thing that really drove him nuts. They would say, oh I could never leave my family to go be a missionary. And Dr. Wright would say, he never actually said this, but he would kind of jokingly go, I looked back at him and go, you know, it's a good thing I hate my family so much. <laughs> that would be his response in his mind. I hate him, you know, and so that's the only reason I'm going to Brazil. But his point in telling us that was, was simply this. He had fallen in love with Jesus and he wanted others to fall in love with Jesus too. And so when Jesus said, hey, you know, whispered in his heart, you need to go to Brazil. Dr. Wright said, I'll go. Not because he had problems with his family, not because he didn't love them. He chose to become undignified to do something culturally abnormal because he loved Jesus so much and he realized that Jesus had done so much for him. That he was willing to go to, to Brazil, uh, to go into the rainforest and, and to tell other people about Jesus. There's this other thing that came to mind when I kind of read this, that here's this, this Pharisee who wants this woman to, to stop touching Jesus. And he's like, if, if Jesus were a prophet, and clearly Jesus is because he realizes what he's thinking. We'll see that in a minute. But, but I, I just thought about this thing that is happening in our culture today. Uh, maybe you've heard the phrase cancel culture. We live in a cancel culture now. And that is that if anybody does something that culturally we find unacceptable, then, then it means apparently that they need to be canceled. They need to not have a Netflix show anymore. They need to not be able to work anymore. They need to be able to uh, be in the public eye anymore. They're done. They're canceled. They're shut off. It's over. And, and people scream and holler for this, at least on Twitter, like, hey, look, 10 years ago you said something that now we don't find acceptable, and so you can't work in this industry anymore, do this thing anymore. That's it. You are, you are canceled. And you know, what culture does with that is less important to me than what we as Christians do with that. Uh, if we're going to follow Jesus, then we, then we cannot buy into the cancel culture. We must be a people of forgiveness. It's just who Jesus is, and if we follow Jesus, then we must be like that. And I love this story because here's a woman whom Simon says, Leah, canceled. You're not the type of person that gets access to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't bat an eye. He says, 
I mean, he just jumps into a parable that says this woman is an example of what it means to live out of faith. We serve an incredible God who no matter what we have done, no matter who we used to be, who, who we are, where we grew up, you know, all of the atrocious things that we might have done, no matter all of that, God offers us forgiveness for each and everything, and he always invites us into a relationship with him. And, and that is an incredible idea for me anyway. It continues. Jesus answered him. Here's his answer. He said, look, hey, how can you let this woman do this to you? Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Jesus' point is clear, right? The more that a person is forgiven, the more they will love. But as Jesus' life story goes on and then his followers write after he dies and rises again, something else becomes clear. Each and every one of us has an infinite amount of sin, of disobedience to God that needs to be forgiven. And so what we learn in this story is not that we'll love God more if we become people who sin more. The story is that uh, points to the fact that we will become people who love more if we recognize if we recognize how truly sinful we are and how great it is that Jesus can forgive us for our sins. I think of the Apostle Paul who wrote much of what we know as the New Testament and, and he calls himself the chief of all sinners. And his entire life seems to be after he gives his life to Christ, after he has an encounter with Jesus, after that his entire life seems to be lived in love of God. He seems to do everything because he loves Jesus so much. And I think part of that is exactly what Jesus illustrates for us in this parable. He recognizes how great of a sinner he is and how truly desperate he was for a savior. The story that we believe as Christians is that each and every one of us are sinners and, and Jesus came to earth to die for those sins and then he came back to life so that all we have to do is place our faith in Jesus and we can have forgiveness for those sins and come into a relationship with God. It's a beautiful story. But what happens, I think, because it's so easy to enter into a relationship with God is that we can be quick to skip over that sin part. In the American church culture today, we don't even like to talk about sin, it seems like. We want to jump right to the grace of Jesus. But if we jump to the grace of Jesus while forgetting the sin, then according to Jesus, we will not recognize how desperate we were for him. And then we will struggle to lavish love upon him because we won't feel like an, a great debt has been taken away from us. We won't feel like a great debt has been taken away from us. Love doesn't just stem from, from being forgiven a lot. It stems from recognizing how much we have been forgiven because all of us, all of us had a debt that we could never, ever, ever pay back and Jesus offered us forgiveness. He offered to pay for that debt on the cross. The story continues, then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. 
You do not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. He takes this illustration and he makes it real. He says, look at, look at this woman's love. And he says, this interesting thing, he says, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Jesus isn't saying that, that her act of lavishing love upon him has resulted in the forgiveness of her sins. What he's saying is, I can tell that she has now placed her faith in me in such a way that her sins have been forgiven. And how can I tell? Because her great love has shown me that she has been forgiven. Her great love has shown that she has been forgiven. I'll tell you that we will love, we will love greatly, we will love God greatly if we begin to understand, maybe for the first time for some of you, but maybe for the millionth time for some of you, if you will remember how great of a debt God has forgiven you for and from. She she recognizes deeply how much she needs to be forgiven for her sins. And so it follows that when she experiences that forgiveness, she immediately lavishes love upon Jesus. And if we will be people who will continually remember that we had an unforgivable debt, but Jesus found a way to forgive it, then we will lavish our love upon Jesus. And if we lavish our love upon Jesus, then we will be, as we'll see in just a second, people who live out our faith. Listen to the, I just have a couple of questions that need answered before we finish this morning. Why is forgiveness important? I mean, why is it important? And then how does this connect to faith here's i think how jesus answers those questions luke 7 48 through 50 then jesus said to her your sins are forgiven and the other guests began to say to themselves who is this that even forgives sins jesus said to the woman your faith has saved you go in peace so at the end here there's the two connections i mean why is forgiveness important because forgiveness results in peace I think peace is an underrated word in kind of how we do Christianity today. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about forgiveness and love and even hope. But peace, it seems like it only comes up at Christmas time. That's when we talk about peace is at Christmas. And, and, and yet it's an important word in Scripture. It's a word that refers to wholeness and well-being. And, uh, and it applies to so many areas of life. But what we see in the Bible is that first, Jesus' forgiveness allows for us to have peace with God. What we see scripturally is that we, when we're in our sins, are, are enemies of God. We were at odds with God. Our lives are not in line with God and His will for us. And, and we, we all who have, have not given our lives to Christ, we are not in God's family. But if we will give ourselves to Jesus, if we will place our faith in Christ, then we have forgiveness. And that forgiveness allows for us to have peace with God. But not only that, we all who have made that decision know that when we have peace with God, then we have other types of peace. We have the forgiveness of sin and so the weight, the guilt of that sin goes away and we find peace. We find that peace that we all kind of want. 
We have peace because we no longer have to fear death and, and what happens after this life. We begin to have peace with other people that we maybe thought we could never have peace with. We find all kinds of peace when we find forgiveness. And Jesus here ends this story by saying, hey, your faith has saved you, so here's what you can do now. You can go in peace. You no longer have to have guilt from sin. You can find connection to God. You can have peace. But how does this connect to faith? Well, he says it here. He says it's her faith that has saved her. And so we see again that this lavish love is, is connected to her placing her faith in Jesus. And so the point of this story seems to be twofold. First of all, Jesus is awesome. The fact that Jesus forgives even people who deserve to be canceled is incredible. We serve, if we are Christians, we serve an incredible God. Remember Luke, maybe I haven't even said this in this series, is writing for a man named Theophilus who is just kind of going, should I embrace this Jesus stuff? And so a lot of what we read in the Gospel of Luke is, is simply Luke saying, look how incredible Jesus is. Of course you should embrace him. And of course you should become a Christian. But the other point here seems to be that we, we will fall more deeply in love with God when we understand how great of sinners we are and how much he has forgiven us. And if we will, if we will fall greatly and deeply in love with God, then we will naturally live out our faith. This series is all about living out our faith. And as I said at the beginning, that's really complicated right now. But, but the question at the heart of it, I think, that like at, at the heart of it, we laid a foundation last week, but the heart of living a life of faith, of walking in faith, is simply asking yourselves, do I really love God? Like deeply and passionately. And if I do, then what decisions do I need to make on a daily basis because of that love? What does it mean today to live a life that loves God? What does it mean for me to live in such a way? And when you're pondering all of these different difficult questions that maybe we've transitioned to in our world, when you're pondering the normal questions of life and how to live and what to do every single day, it can be so hard. But if we'll go, you know what? God has forgiven me a ton. Therefore, I love him. And then we'll ask this question. What does it mean for me to love God in this situation? Then we will start to live a life of faith. We will start to live out our faith. And so this morning, I just want you to know, you know, Jesus loves you. Jesus is where you can find forgiveness. And if you do, don't forget how much you've been forgiven, but return to it often. By the way, I, I side note, maybe not a side note. I want to finish with this. Uh, I really enjoy ancient liturgies. Uh, a liturgy is like an order of service. I mean, we have our own kind of liturgy in our church, but but ancient liturgies, I've I've found... I found them to be rewarding for my Christian faith. And, and, and one of the things that you'll find when you look at a lot of ancient liturgies, if you just go to a Catholic church today, you'll find the same thing. You soon discover that services, that liturgies often begin with confession. They begin with, with people confessing their faith quietly. Usually you're not shouting it out loud, but they begin with confession. As I thought about this story, ancient liturgies came to my mind because I wonder if that's been intentional in church history 
to say, you know what, we must always start with confession because it reminds us how much we've been forgiven. And when we're reminded how much we've been forgiven, it causes us to love God and then all of this service kind of flows out of a love for God. And here's, I guess, final point. I, I went out of order here, but I'll finish with this. I think that we need to be people of confession and repentance, people who remember how much sin we commit, even on a daily basis, in order that we can remember the incredible grace of God fall more and more deeply in love with him so that we will live out a life of faith. Let me pray that we'll do that. Lord Jesus, uh, you know, I can be this way, God. I, I, I really easily forget, um, you know, that moment when I was 17 years old and I recognized how incredible your love is, how much you've forgiven me, God. Um, I can forget that. I can I can act like I'm pious. I can be like a Pharisee, God, and I don't want to be. I want to every day wake up and remember how great a debtor I'm constrained to be, Lord. Uh, I pray that you do that in me, and I pray you do that for us, Lord. People watching online, those sitting in front of me, I pray, God, that you would remind us how unable, God, we were to pay for the debt that is our sin and how great it is that you came and did it for us. I pray, God, for anybody who's not a Christian, who has not accepted your offer of salvation, I pray that you would, that you would draw them into a uh, relationship with you right now, God. Let your Holy Spirit speak to them in a still, small voice or in big, grand ways and draw them to you. But for those of us who are Christians, return to our minds and our hearts, God, uh, a love for you every day that is based on how much we have been forgiven. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.